Hey everybody, it's Nolan North, you know, Nathan Drake from Uncharted, and you're listening to the Geek Apocalypse Podcast. Hello everybody and welcome along to episode 123 of the Geek Apocalypse Podcast with yours truly, Mr. Stephen Hesse, and this is a more different one or unique uh, podcast than normal and he had to explain why. I hope you enjoyed the episode we did with Claudia Christian and huge thank you to Ricky for co-hosting that uh, last in the last episode and speaking of Ricky, this is what this episode is about because I wanted to do an episode for a while about mentally sound and Obviously, this podcast, Geek Apocalypse, is mine, uh, as in it's my company and we do, uh, that, that sounds very, um, sort of protective. I don't I mean that in that sense. I just mean it's part of my company and we do a weekly podcast where we sit down with a guest and talk about whatever comes up. Well, as Mentally Sound is another show that I do in Newcastle once a month on our radio station here and we release it as a podcast on iTunes. Um, it's been running for about a year and a half, so about half the time Geek Apocalypse has. And I wanted to do like a compilation best of because um, I'm really proud of being part of it and as people know who listen to this I'm very open about my mental health and sort of a, I guess a pioneer not really pioneer you know what I mean like a, I'm I'm a campaigner for making mental health be more aware and, and, and getting rid of the stigma and discrimination so I wanted to do the best of for the people who listen to this and hopefully it'll encourage people to download that podcast and give it a try so this is going to be weirder than the normal podcast you're listening listening to because like i say it's not going to be a sit down interview with one person it's a it's a compilation and they may not make sense when you first listen to some clips because we didn't do introductions for some of them because they're out of context so just bear with it and hopefully you'll just uh, enjoy what uh, what clips we we brought out of it so in terms of stuff you're going to hear like at the beginning two shows ago it's going to be the introduction when the when the podcast starts sort of showing you what it's like to listen to the first bit of me and ricky doing the introduction uh, we also show some pre-recorded stuff like steve steve o'driscoll talks to steve warburton about adult healthcare because that's something we're passionate about about um portraying how difficult it is for benefits here in the uk and um, we also talk to studio interviews with such as jenny walwick the ex badminton player who works for the um our own foundation and kelly holmes foundation we also talk to jason who's an ex-army vet who went to iraq afghanistan who suffers PTSD. I also talked to Mick, who was one of the judges who nominated us for the award, because I should say we're very fortunate enough that this is an award-winning podcast, Mentally Sound, in terms of we won an award last year and got nominated this year. Um, and there's a whole host of other stuff, like Joe and Holly, who have been on this podcast um, from NHS, so we talked to them as well. And it's and also it ends on me playing a song, which was from two shows ago, and stuff like as well pre-recorded stuff like uh, Victoria and Jules talking about it's a wonderful life. So yeah, it, it's a a very um, put together clip show, but I hope it encourages people to listen to Mentally Sound, and it's an entertaining show. It's not depressing, uh, which is ironic. So please do listen to it and subscribe to this and that show and I hope uh, it encourages you to download other episodes and listen so thanks guys hope you enjoy this best of Matty Sound Thank <laughs> you. 
Hello guys, and welcome to a very different Mentally Sound mm. because we are here in Broadacre House on f- floor zero. Ground, uh, you know what it is, when I was going down the lift I was going, it's ground zero. <laughs> so in, so did you go up zero. and then down? Yeah, oh. well I went up to talk to Alistair yeah. and I went down, but you you did too. So, yeah. But anyway, yeah, so we should explain before, this is going to be a very unconventional introduction to the show because... Uh, we need to explain why we're in Broadacre mm-hmm. and not in the regular studio. So the very quick version, because it is a dull story, <laughs> is that, that um, we obviously are part of Gravity, so we won't be saying welcome to uh, Mentally Sound on Gravity Radio because we're not on Gravity Radio doing this podcast. It's because they've moved uh, They've moved to across the road of Broadacre House, where me and Ricky now work for, and they are in the process of uh, re moving the what's the right word they're redistributing I was going to say but that's not right they're relocating that's it relocating they're relocating (laughs) you know what it is you read my mind that's exactly what I was thinking about that program but anyway so yeah so they were they basically had an office space uh, with Destiny Church around the corner um Obviously, circumstances which is none of our business that they can't, they no longer could basically be there. Mm-hmm. So they're moving to around the corner, which happily is across the road from where we work. Mm-hmm. So, um, unfortunately, which is why this is about a week late, is that the studio is not ready um, because there, there's been lots of work being done with the building that they've moved to. It's a very nice building, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, we should mm-hmm. talk about that in a second. But yeah, so they and they've also going to rebrand with the fact that they've moved moved places. So Gravity is now called Nova. Uh, which I guess whoever came up with the names must be really space. That's uh, right, yeah. Must like space, like you know. But then a lot of radio stations are. They have that kind of I don't know. What is it about space that connects radio? <laughs> is there a metro in? Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a metro line in in uh, space. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's the current situation. Mm-hmm. So basically, the studio is still being built. I would say out of the because I believe just like on my podcast, in terms of being honest, is the. I we we have no real indication whether or not that will be fixed by the next mm-hmm, time we mm-hmm. do a show. So hopefully it will. We hope it is. It, um, it looks like they've made a good start. Yeah, I was going to say. Do you want to mention like what was your impression of when we went to see the space at the studio? I think it, it potentially looks exciting. Um, but what we were asking ourselves afterwards is like, how many people are working on this? Is it a one man job or is it a team? If it's a team. I think we'll probably we'll probably <laughs> see it done in that time. Sorry, it made me laugh because I remember exactly what your response was. Because you said we, <laughs> you said really great was um, if this is just like one person like and he's off time with like one <laughs> hammer oh, that's going to take forever. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know? and I'm like, you got a point there. Like, because like a loan. Co- co- oh yeah, because you said you know. said and, it, and if anyone from Nova you know listens to this because it is going to be broadcast on Nova because no, we should see as well Nova still being broadcast. So this is going to be go on Nova's. Um, uh, stream uh, being broadcast so technically so um, we're, obviously if Nova people are listening to this and Nova listeners um, we're not being disparaging we're just playing but um, we just Ricky's response was great as well because he walked in and, and then afterwards when we went so what do you think he's like oh it looks quite promising but I was kind of hoping someone would be working on it when yeah, we got there yeah. <laughs> it was just like a dead room <laughs> it was just a room with a bunch of boxes and I'm going wow that's going to take a bit of time But well yeah. his sign saying do not touch because work is, work is in progress but you know it was like, and you're like, it was like been, work abandoned, yeah. be back later. And your first response was, there's been work done here? <laughs> like, what? Yeah. So, so yeah, and also we should say, 
because um, I don't know when this is going to be released as a podcast, is that that is essentially the delay in why the last show's not been mm. up as well because mm. of the movement, the moving studios and stuff. It's been a bit hectic for them, mm. so I guess we're trying not to be too. But the last show I understand being broadcast on this day, we, we were told. So oh yeah, yeah actually yeah. yeah. So yeah. As, as we're recording this, apparently the previous show I think is going to be on. So do get a chance to um, listen. So yeah. obviously, no other listeners will get a chance to look to mm. listen to that. But anyway, so that's the bit. So I, I felt like we covered that in three minutes. Yeah. That's pretty. Yeah. I think we did a decent job of that. Yeah. So, so yeah, this is going to be different in the sense of to explain how the show is going to work is we're going to obviously have a chat for about ten minutes or so, but it's going to be roughly the same. In fact, but the difference is there's no music, so all them silly cutaways in the podcast version where you're like, oh, that's a bit sucks because it just it, uh, we freely admit it ruins the momentum because. But obviously, we don't have hundreds of thousands of pounds to spend on mm-hmm. the copyright copyright. Uh, like intellectual property ownership with uh, with um, music and stuff. So the advantage of that is we're just going to do it as if it's live, even though we're pre-recording this. And so guests are going to come into this room we're using, and we're going to do it as as live as we can, uh, as in. But you know what? It, le- it allows you to do with your sort of mastering editing skills. You, you <laughs> can put some funky music, you know, in the yeah. Edit, in the well, as I said, I was going to put my own music yeah. at the end of it because mm-hmm. I was going to bring my guitar, but it was just like with carrying my laptop and stuff. Yeah. It's just really too much for me. Um, but yeah, I'll play. I'll, I was going to put some, one of my own uh, music in because I always wanted to play on this show. So because mm-hmm. I never get a chance to play music anymore. So so yeah, so we're going to play that at the end. But yeah, so in terms of who's coming up, let's talk about that before mm-hmm. we talk any further. So so we do have guests. Some of cancelled last minute which is a shame but we do have a last minute replacement which is nice um, so yeah so Simone uh, from Simone is Steve's guest from yes. the recovery college on the 5th floor I believe yes um, so in a place uh, for a lo- which uh, has a, a partnership with Launchpad who helps mm. run the show so yeah so she's going to come in to talk about as Ricky said about recovery college and just the work that they do and the work that she does and I guess how it's helped mm-hmm. her I'm, I'm assuming so yeah she's going to be coming in about 10 minutes time mm-hmm. and uh, well 10 minutes time to us but obviously the, the, uh, after the pre-record you're going to hear I should say yeah. uh, this is going to be the start of the show what's complicated is because we're not playing the pre-records live so it's just like oh yeah we need to take some time to do that <laughs> yeah. so yeah this is going to be a bit weird but, I mean, but anyway so, so yeah she's going to come in to talk about that mm-hmm. um, we, we're going to have Chris from Tightside Cinema who can't make it sadly so Bill Scott who's a contributed uh, contributed to the show good friend of the show is filling in for him uh, in about uh, something like four, uh, 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 in the first hour yeah. as I say it's going to be complicated with not playing the pre-records for us but there you go so he's going to be here we obviously got mental health news with Steve mm-hmm. And your guest, do you want to mention your guest? Yes, um, looking forward to a gentleman by the name of Ian Driver will be coming in. Um, <clears throat> I'll tell you how this quickly came about. I'll, yeah, I'll mention this it, yeah. to Ian as well. Yeah, yeah. But no, I, I got a newsletter from my Member of Parliament, and um, yeah, he, she met up with a group called the Geordie Breakfast Club, and that name in itself is so intriguing, you have to read more. What? Oh, if, it's, if it's the Geordie version of the Breakfast Club film. I'm I know, that's what I thought, yeah. <laughs> well, the iconic, who didn't grow up watching that film? It yeah, so oh. iconic. I mean, oh yeah, it's going to get us talking about but, it. Um, Me and Ricky off, off, off air, just, that's all we ever talk about, it's just like 80s, classic 80s films and stuff. Uh, we're in retro mood, didn't we, because yeah, we yeah. talked about 90s football. Yeah, 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 we should mention that, actually, yeah, we did a um, Euro 2016 special, which I encourage you, anyone, any football fans in this, I encourage you to watch, lot of me fun, and Ricky, lot of not only do we talk about England and how rubbish we are, but also we talked about, uh, we made our predictions for the final, and let's just say we weren't correct, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I encourage you to listen to that, but anyway, yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah. so yeah, well, it turned out it was nothing like the film, not that I was expecting it to be, but um, no, it, it, it was, e- got that name it was equally, if not more, insightful, because this is actually, 
a group of veterans who um, we who meet on a weekly basis um, in a restaurant. We'll learn more about which one and why later on. That's cool, though. <coughs> yeah, and they sort of like get together and support one another. And uh, uh, I think they're very young at the moment. I don't think they have a huge internet presence. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, th- it's all about you know getting back to Savy Street as they as they call it. And uh, yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know, for some reason I feel like I've heard his name before, but like, obviously that, that seems like quite a common name, so I might not have met him. But. Mm. Well, we'll but no, find out. Yes, exactly, yeah. Um, and also, uh, not only about your guest, but you've also did a pre-record, That's which right. uh, I think it's the one that intrigued me, has mm-hmm. it to do with the... Yeah, so go, please do... Okay, so that. there's an, uh, an independent film that was made uh, within the last yes, year, I believe. It, yeah. um, it's called The Perfect Hunch of an Agrophobe. And it's, it explores the theme of agrophobia and domestic abuse. So I had a chat with the uh, the writer and uh, the director um, and the, the main actress who plays the protagonist in the film uh, by the name of Supraniti Mahanakot and she tells us all about how it came about and what she hopes to achieve with with with, with making a film that explores such such uh, themes as that because it's not common is it no I mean that's that one of the, th- the reason why I said like I was intrigued is because Ricky when we were uh, sharing a bus ride home uh, last time I saw him was um, he mentioned this uh, pre-record and I was like that sounds really interesting mm-hmm. um, because I always think and again this is something with us doing training for this show I actually am trying to encourage people to do is that the the segments I really liked you know, as, as I say, I'm speaking from a personal experience, but I, I, I'm sure I think Ricky will agree with this: is that the film seg- segments we used mm. to do, mm. where we kind of touched on mainstream films mm. or classic films mm. with mental health involved mm. in it, mm. and obviously, like ba- I'd say, for example, Batman's an obvious example with Bruce. And some don't, some don't even know that mental health is a running theme to yeah. a lot of films. And it, even I revisit back to some films I used to watch growing up and realize wow there was a strong mental health element uh, i'm gonna uh, this again look uh, uh, this seems like i'm going completely off topic but bear with me is that um it, this reminds me of um tarantino in that tarantino obviously being a massive film buff mm-hmm. uh got asked the question of and it's like i think it's on a reddit post or something mm-hmm. that people regularly debate this mm-hmm. is that lots of like um old films like citizen kane and mm-hmm. stuff which are obviously like br- like almost like regarded as bromance films mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that Tarantino agrees with the argument of they have like quite homosexual tones in <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and when you when you listen to the yeah. argument and read like right. you know I can't really delve into this too much detail yeah. what we're doing now mm-hmm. but if you think about it and you think about certain films with like especially sort of cowboy films that are all like bravados and brothers yeah. and stuff yeah. and you see like especially the sort of early 60s films mm-hmm. that there are like quite a, 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 a reasonable argument mm-hmm. that there's some like homosexual tendencies in some form but I think they just as he points out though which I think is a very good point Mm -hmm. because I think this but I don't think it's necessarily homosexual but it's but I guess it it really branches out to the word love because Mm -hmm. you know I I, you know for example my old friends and any friend I have I essentially love them to a degree Mm -hmm. I always think that Mm -hmm. and I often say that my friends just because of knowing them longer is that my friends of like 20 odd years I see are like brothers to me because Mm -hmm. I absolutely love them like Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't live without them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I think it's more that argument really as opposed mm-hmm. to like a physical homosexual mm-hmm. relationship but um, I just found that interesting no no <laughs> going back to our our um, bus ride that we had the other day yeah. do you remember we went up Shields Road <laughs> that's like an epic journey I know, I know. <laughs> Well, it was Did, retro. Guys, I didn't realise this meant so much to Ricky. <laughs> yeah. He's just like, do you remember that bus ride? It's really, really quite mental. <laughs> we're going to Liddell, Liddell, Liddell's as well. He's going to Liddell's. Oh, like, yeah. you know, how romantic. Highlight, <laughs> highlight my weekend. I'm, I'm sorry, but go on. But we noticed that like, we went past the, yeah, the, the shop that my uh, dad, I pointed out my shop, the, the shop oh, my yeah. dad used to have on Shields Road. I'm glad you brought that up because that intrigued me and I never got a chance to ask you about it. Mm-hmm. He, well, he had that store throughout the 80s, but yeah. going back to what we're talking about films, because when I used to help my dad in the 80s on the Saturdays, you know, my, my only moment of like sort of, you know, uh, leisurely activity on such a day would be going to the big uh, video rental shop, which was next door. Yeah. And I used to hire out. Now, bearing in mind this was like the mid-80s, I used to hire out a lot of these sort of um, army films that did well in Hollywood. So we're talking about um, Platoon, we're talking about Full Metal Jacket, and so on. And I used to get these out. Not that I was a big army fan as such, but I was just intrigued that, you know, oh, that looks quite cool. Hmm. Not that I'm into violence or anything, but as a young kid, you kind of think, oh, you know, helmets, guns, aeroplane ships and stuff, and you watch it. And that had a kind of a profound effect because... And this is what I'm looking forward to speaking with, with Ian, because um, you talked about the brotherly thing, about the movies you used to watch. Yeah. There's a lot of camaraderie in them sorts of yeah, films as well. Yeah, that's the word I was thinking And of, then yes. going back to exploring the mental health theme, because there's certain, certain films of those ilk that do explore things like PTSD, which was discussed in, in the army and such, and, and coming back home. Hmm. So... so no, no that's really intended, interesting, yeah. yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um and also something as well, because am I right in thinking this happened while we were, while we were been away for the last show? But Brexit, ha- Brexit happened during the time uh-huh. off, didn't it? Uh-huh. And also we should say, which I guess we'll talk more about mental mm. health news because it's obviously a big, big, big topic conversation. Mm. But also we should say because this happened last night. Um, obviously everyone here at Mentally Sound uh, shares their condolences to the people in Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, that really affected me when I read this this morning because it just made me sort of think. I don't know whether you saw this on Twitter, but I got very sort of annoyed and actually tweeted a thing about it. There's people saying like, taking advantage of the Brexit situation mm-hmm. by saying, "Oh, it's a non-European issue yeah. that we're not involved in it now. Like we don't need to care about it because we're not European anymore." And I'm just like, my my response to that was, "We're all human beings." Like, mm-hmm. screw that technically we're not part of the European. I still regard myself as a European, and I regard myself as yeah. a worldwide citizen. And so this idea of that mm. we shouldn't care about human beings, that it happens relatively close to us, even though that's, again, relatively... It's inevitable whenever these tragedies occur, there's people out there who will say, I'll, uh, say I told you so. A political... Yeah, almost jump, a political on, jump on the bandwagon, it's that. Point, yeah. And the irony is, as well, the, <sighs> the, the MP that got murdered, Joe Cox, it's actually her funeral today. Yeah. And after her death, quite rightly, people were saying, let's have a new form of politics where we all respect one another and but that only lasted maybe a day or two and now we're back to the same old same old yeah because and the, i read a, an article in the guardian that just made me go just such a negative connotation of it there's nothing you can do to stop someone doing something mm. like that which in a in a in i get in a very basic sense how that has a valid point mm. but it doesn't but my sort of attitude about reading something like that my response is why don't we try? Mm. Like, you, you know, we still should try and maybe make our like sort of 
defense is better or you know our terrorist um our terroristic uh, anti-terrorist team have a better have a better resources or we do a better job of making sure that that, that people are regulated more or something like that i don't know but do you know what do you know what came out of the whole brexit thing as well is that i saw a lot of um, writers write articles um on the huffington post which i subscribed to oh yeah but there were a lot of writers saying describing emotions uh, with its connection to politics because uh, yeah. the, after Brexit I mean we're not delving into whether we wrote it in or out I think okay. it's a bit irrelevant but yeah, yeah. there was a lot of people obviously saddened and worried particularly the younger generation who were worried about their future so a lot of a lot of writers were sort of like it would be worth writing about how we um, is there a connection between what goes on the on a political sense and how we feel inside does, does one affect Good the point. other I think I think I think for this particular vote, I think it's not unfair to say that a lot of people voted with their emotion mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. opposed to actually like reading mm-hmm. the consequences of mm-hmm. what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why a lot of the topics topics that they were discussed mm-hmm. didn't really have relevance to whether we're in the EU or not, mm-hmm. and yet people exactly. voted in that sense, which exactly. uh, which um, I, I find silly. Um, I agree with you in terms of not maybe talking about who, who voted for what, mm-hmm. but I still think um, as Dave will mention this in mental health news, it's an interesting debate. Uh, because I've never seen a vote or a political thing, you know, and there's been a lot of them, obviously, like, you know, voting for a prime minister or mm-hmm. whatever, or a party or whatever, mm-hmm. or local elections. I've never seen a thing where everybody involved in my life, who I say on a regular basis, everybody's brought yeah, it up. Yeah. And it's, and what I find fascinating about it, I guess, because I'm a debater and I'm a host and I like talking to people and, mm-hmm. and debating and, and, mm-hmm. and all this kind of thing mm-hmm. is, there's a valid argument for both <laughs> there's a, or at least uh, which is what makes debates interesting is because you know you can see both sides of the coin and i definitely can mm-hmm. uh, with the not being in the eu and being in mm-hmm. the eu mm-hmm. and obviously there's there's facts which i've read which mm-hmm. um reinforce both arguments yeah. so um it's it's fascinating on that sense but anyway so so yeah uh, so i'm really excited for this show because as i say this is going to be a lot more laid back as you can hear yeah um, and the fact that we don't have to go the whole but we're going to be we're going to be, to we're gonna be equally highly charged yes we? yeah, and, um, equally and also i was going to make the joke of we can actually actually drink while we do this as well because <laughs> i mean i've had a really bad throat today so i'm like um so it's really nice that we can do that um but yeah so uh, what you're about to hear uh, obviously in the broadcast version uh, is the pre-record that i did which was a few weeks ago and i should say as well um, i did a longer form version on my podcast uh, with these two guests um which i'll be releasing roughly the same time as you're hearing this so um, obviously uh, if you like this particular interview you can listen to a longer form on my podcast Keep Apocalypse. but um it's with um Joe, Hol- Joe and Holly. Um, I'm just making sure I get where they were from. A weird, uh, a weird uh, particular NHS. So I'm gonna make sure I get this right. Okay. Hum- Humber, weird. I think. Oh, yeah, because I was gonna say NH. <laughs> I was gonna say um, I was gonna just say NHS, <coughs> but then I was like, okay, I'll make sure I get it right. I'm pretty sure I said Humber. I'm gonna make sure I've got my phone. Why is my phone going silly? That trust does exist, doesn't it? It wasn't like from Narnia or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Humber NHS Foundation Trust, right? But basically, just so you know, and it's mentioned where where they're based in is like sort of Yorkshire area. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, they're based in Humber, and they um, they basically uh, work for them and the, the support support workers and stuff like that. So yeah, so they're gonna we're gonna you're gonna hear that pre-record right now. Uh, where they were very good that. to come up here to do this. Yeah, they actually <laughs> travelled down on the train and whatnot, which was kind of which was kind of cool. So. So yeah, um, it's really, really awesome. So yeah, we're going to play that pre-record for you now uh, with Joe and uh, Holly, and uh, we'll be right back to talk to Simone in a second after this break. 
Hi guys, welcome to Mentally Sound right here on, which will be probably Nova Station, I'm not quite sure, but I'm delighted to say I'm here with... I'm Joe Harris. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm Holly Alex. And you guys are from where? Um, we work for, um, we work across Yorkshire and Humber, um, across all the secure psychiatric services uh, within that region mm-hmm. um, as involvement leads. Okay, um, and what guys, what does your jobs entail? Like, I guess the one with starting from Joe. Like, what do you do? <laughs> I guess this is the point. Um, she's not really not sure. It's <laughs> the first time I've asked someone's job. And I'm like, uh, I don't I'm, know. I, I've got no idea. <laughs> um, in fact, why am I here? <laughs> um, but yeah, sorry, go on. Um, okay, so... Uh, Holly Alex, Alex it's Holly. Holly, Holly Alex. Alex, yeah. Because yeah, that confused me. I thought when I, I was know. evil and you I was talking to both. I've I was, got I was two first names. It's my fault. Let's talk about it. Oops, he's posh. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but no, sorry, go on. So, uh, we work... Um, with commissioners and service users and staff who work within those hospitals mm-hmm. um, to improve the, the quality of care, really, that people get, to improve people's experiences, mm-hmm. um, to make sure that the service users have a voice in lots of different areas. Um, so is it a case of helping them get the help, or do you actually give them help? Because that's obviously some, that's a very good distinction. It's helping them to get the right help mm-hmm. by being able to be more proactive and independent in their own care. Mm-hmm. Also, in a sense, are you saying that, is that like from a personal point of view, I guess, in that sort of personal life? Is it to kind of get them, because we were talking just before we started about, for example, you know, obviously lifestyle is important mm. and all that kind of stuff. So is that part of it? Yeah, it's it's about them saying what what things are important to them. Um, and helping them so that they can regain some of those things mm-hmm. in in their lives, and yeah. that services support that support them around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but a lot of it, um, although there's always going to be a personal element in that you know what's important to you as a human being within um, within your life and within the hospital that you're in. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is thinking about common themes that. Are often important to lots of different people so it might be um, one of the things we've been working on recently is around family and carer involvement so service users have been saying to us actually we want our families to be more involved and uh, in our care to be given more information um, and to be That's included good. in things um, so we've been working then with um, the services with the staff and the service users to say how can we improve the quality of care and family involvement for the individual? For yeah. the individual, because it's something I always talk about on the show, which um, is obviously good to hear from someone who people who work within the NHS. Yeah, is that I often hear, and I guess this is a sort of stereotype. We try and say that that's not as easy as that. Is I guess the the stereotypical way I guess society looks at this to some degree is that with mental health in particular, no matter what it is, is that it's almost like it's 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 their business and it's their responsibility to yeah. get better. And I keep making the point of as someone who's been very sick, you know, I've been in I've been in a psychiatric hospital which people know, is that as much as I understand that 
way of saying that, I don't think it's as easy as that. Like, as in, so I guess, because you said something that intrigued me, because I always say this, it's I say, like, I think it has to be, you know, I'm obviously given an extreme example, Mm -hmm. because I would regard what I went through as an extreme example, but my point is, like, I feel like it should be like that for everybody, in the sense that family's important, because yeah. because mm-hmm. I think people make the mistake of people, and I want to know what you guys think, like, is it is it is it an element of that some people don't give the right help to somebody, because I've certainly been as a friend, just a general friend yeah. to somebody, where I feel like I'm going, oh, should I leave that person alone, and then they may say in a week's time, like, I can't, oh, you, do- you, don't, get- you don't care about me, and I'm like, that's not the point, like, yeah. I thought you wanted some space, like, yeah. so is it part, is that part of it as well, is it just yeah. to figure out what's best for them? I think it can, it can be really difficult, especially if, if someone's unwell, mm-hmm. to, to, to know how best to support them with things like family and friend um, input because like you said that might change from week to week yeah. what they want or it might change from day to day and yeah. so when a service user comes into a service um, we we thought with our um, the people that we engage with about a set of standards Yes. Um, so it might be that you ask them when they've first admitted what do you want, who do you want us to tell things to, do you want us to contact people on your behalf, do you want us to have no contact um, and, and then but to keep revisiting that mm-hmm. because it might be that they say you know I don't want you to ever contact my mother but actually, then a few weeks later, they might change their mind, and that's okay because but, but not, things uh, my, change. Yeah, I was going to say my problem with that is, is they. I don't think, from my point of view, that that is a mental health problem at all. Like because you know, regular people make that decision exactly. if they've not got a they've not got a good relationship with their parents they might want to take or I'm not speaking to them ever again yeah. I mean you know I've said that before yeah. and I don't mean it in, a, in an aggressive sense Absolutely. and um, you, know, you know people who know me personally in particular I fell out with my parents during that period of time and I've yeah. slowly rebuilt the relationship yeah. because it's just difficult it it's difficult for everybody yeah. and I think you you know there's, there were several good points you made there where you know I think the key is it seems to me is that it changes for everybody. I mean, yeah. like, some, I'm reapplying for ASA recently, and right. I, that's the problem to kind of make people realise that with someone who goes through a mental health issue is that you're never going to be, like, the cheerful person who you're talking to now, I might be a blithering wreck tomorrow. Like, yeah. I can't guarantee that I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be that way. Is this um, creative writing? It's not, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, okay. Yeah. Also, I think... Um, I'll cut that out. <laughs> it's, it can sometimes be quite difficult for staff because they're told about like confidentiality yes. in training. That's kind of like drummed into people. You know, you can't tell people without people's permission. But then... So I think often the people that, that work in these services are a bit scared of confidentiality. So they think, oh, I better not say anything to yeah, anyone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When actually... The, the service user in question might actually like you to make a weekly phone call to the family and give them just a bit of an update, you know, everything's yeah. fine, or give them a bit of reassurance. But I think often staff will shy away that's from any contact point. because Very they think point. they might get in trouble. Or Yeah, that's a really good point because I think I always found in, yeah, I can only obviously speak for my situation, mm. obviously, but there's, there's, there's other examples I've heard, and it seems the common thing that I read about is that they never could when you're a vulnerable person and you're not very well you might make bad decisions and you're probably going to make more bad decisions than good ones and you because you're 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 sort of trying to beat your mental health issue is that you may find yourself um not not able to think rationally or think of the other side of the coin like i always jokingly say i have a friend who i've known 20 odd years who i'm actually seeing tonight and i often say to him 
he's my like con- voice of conscious of consciousness or whatever the right word is because I sometimes get muddled because bipolar disorder is often I refer to as like a hundred buses coming at once and trying to unmask what I'm really thinking or feeling because right. I think a hundred different things mm-hmm. and he, he's really good as I go he has my problem and he'll go oh, have you thought of it this way and usually it's the one thing I haven't thought about and I'm like you're a genius that, yeah. that's, that is how I feel because it's so rumbled and he kind of like goes well you could do this you could do this you could do this and it's like a really good process. yeah he's yeah. A, he's really great because he's got common sense which I don't have <laughs> so yeah it's just interesting so I guess just a, a brief background about you guys like how when did you guys first get involved in this um, well, I first I'm a I'm a nurse by mental health nurse by All background. Right. Yes. Um, but I started using services before I start before right. I trained as a nurse. Mm-hmm. So um, I started to get involved in things, and whilst I was doing my nurse training, mm-hmm. and then when I became a nurse and worked clinically on the wards, then I realised that. I could be doing more, mm-hmm. so um, so I developed business plans with the Leeds Mental Health Trust to mm-hmm. be able to um, get some involvement facilitators employed within the trust All right, yeah. and some recovery workers. So that's where I started to work in involvement, but then that that just progressed, yeah. and I was working on different service improvement kind of techniques from a service user perspective yeah and um that's how i got this job um from your point of view what interests me what you said there is that did you i mean obviously it's your it must be a passionate thing for you because i mm. guess you went through something but i'm interested to know did you was part of that reason and did you was it did you notice things that weren't um, weren't being dealt with appropriately and you feel that you could yeah. do something about it? Was that part of the process? Yeah, it certainly was. I, I felt quite strongly that that a lot of things were being missed by services yeah. and and that teams were teams could do more in different areas and I felt like I was trying to fill in gaps for people where services weren't meeting those needs mm-hmm. and so I felt like there was a different role that could support the nurses and the OTs and everybody else in the MDT to be able to take a lead on 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 doing something that supported service users but also that worked equally with staff members so I came from an age where the service user movement was quite big yeah and um we worked quite differently to that. We we worked for quite a while before this became more mainstream. We worked with staff as alongside service users, yeah. so that so that people did things together collaboratively and and worked on things together. So that so that you can't change one thing without changing the other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. I, I think that's a really it sounds that sounds a really basic point, but I think yeah. there's not enough people that are aware of that. No. That, uh, so that, that they started like Plan B and not started yeah. Plan A. Yeah. Service users can say that something needs to change, and they can come up with ideas <laughs> about how to change it. But if the but staff are involved it, yeah. on the if the staff are involved yeah. with them coming up with the solutions together then nothing's ever going to change. And again, um, I said before we started this interview is that, um, you know, I often defend 
people in your field for that very reason because it's not that the intent's not there it's just the implementation is mm. they they are they you know through you know stuff we can't get into now but i guess in the, my podcast we can talk about it but like just the lack of funding the lack of availability mm. of people it just it's hard it's hard for them to to do what they know they want to do which is why you know you see nurses who want to try and i guess in your position and mm. um, just quickly like from your like how did you get started in it um so i worked uh, initially um in sort of residential care with adults and children with learning disabilities and quite uh, severe and profound um, disabilities uh, for a while in Bristol Mm -hmm. um, and then um, started working in um, more kind of mental health services in 2008 um, when I worked in a a kind of um, women's step-down high support service um, women with personality disorders and uh, and was working as a support worker there for a year before I started working as involvement coordinator so that was my first kind of job working yeah. within this field really in terms of getting the service user voice heard um, making sure that, um, that the service was providing actually what the service users wanted from their perspective which um, is very useful. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Again, I think what the common trend seems to be, and I couldn't agree more with you with both of you, is that sometimes people are put in situations like it's not the right help, but it's the only help. So people mm-hmm. think like if you're not that help doesn't work, then it's their fault for not getting better. Whereas yeah. every individual case is different, which Absolutely. makes a lot of sense. I guess like because the, the final thing I want to ask you before we're done with this particular section is that obviously you know working for the nhs as we just as i've been touching on is that they sometimes get bad rap which i uh, you know people who listen to this show regularly will know that i and i in particular i'm not speaking for the whole team but i guess i actually i probably feel in general that we do defend nhs and we've had nhs people on like because we had a um alice i forget her second name but she's part of nhs england and so she, she she was on a couple of shows ago so like what do you think, from your point of view, do in terms of the NHS doing more, or I guess if you want to make it more general, like what what's the plan that you think the NHS should do moving forward? Because is it I guess, and also is it fair to say that mental health in general needs more help in terms of? I think mental health needs more more of a. Um, it's obvious that mental health needs more funding. Yes. Um, but I think the the good thing about the NHS is what it does well is the basics. Yes. And I think that too too frequently these days people expect more of the NHS. Correct. And the NHS was there to provide free care for all. Mm-hmm. And what what people expect these days is far above yeah. what what can be given within those within that funding. You made and me reminded me of um, a great paraphrase a nurse told me at a psychiatric hospital. There's far too many people who think the NHS can give miracles when this is a band aid. Yeah. And I could I never heard yeah. that being phrased any better yeah. because um, when I went to a psychiatric hospital, the stereotype in society is this is the place you go to be cured. Yeah. And that's not the case. It's no. like I was so ill, it was a case of stabilising me to the point of okay, he needs real 
emergency help yeah and also figured out obviously i was on the modern medication which doesn't help but yeah. um so once i was windled off that and got a little bit of again a little bit of psychiatric um you know therapy which which helped and then you do, but to your point which i think you were hitting at you, i for my example it's like i went out of hospital and there's nothing for me to, there's yeah. nothing there and, and that's, that's the what, bit where you guys what, come in you know yeah, yeah that's yeah. That's where that's where the the funding needs to lie. Yes, you know. I couldn't agree more. But also, it's it is still, which it shouldn't be, a bit of a postcode lottery, depending on where you are within the country. Um, yeah, what kind like of I, provision is available? Yeah, well. I just rang like the um, the citizens bureau, and it's like if you, there's two different versions, and I live literally about five miles away from Newcastle, and it's like no, you're technically North Tyneside. I'm like really, like yeah. it's still <laughs> kind of closer. It's cl- it makes no sense like yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah it's great great points yeah i couldn't agree more so in terms of like if people are in your area or anything like that i mean do you have like a presence anywhere where people can look at your stuff or anything like that um, i guess it's, i guess it's the shameful thing in radio shows have you got anything to plug yeah, <laughs> yeah have you got any um, gigs coming up <laughs> um yeah i suppose because our roles um are we're we're funded to to work across the secure services so that's low secure and medium secure hospitals okay. both private and nhs oh, right. um within yorkshire and humber um of which there are 16 hospitals so if anyone is in any of those services then they would be able to link in with us we Brilliant. go to their hospitals and link in at their community meetings yeah and we also run a lot of regional meetings where well this goes to a lot of like I know this show gets, um, you know, because we have mental health charities involved in this that it gets sent to a bunch of different people. So, yeah, Yorkshire, I'm sure, um, you know, people listen to this, it may help them and stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, So, where's that information? Like, where can people find it on the interwebs or anything like that? Or is it just a case of... No. Have you got a um, phone number? We uh, we do have um, a lot of bulletins and things that we send out, newsletters and things with information about the different groups that we run, but because the groups are open to those 16 hospitals, then there's always key people within those oh, services right. so that I guess if receive you ask in hospital, everything. And they'll, if they ask in hospital, you may be able to find it. And it can you. be, yeah, disseminated. Oh, right. Okay, and um, is, it, is it wide-ranging, the stuff that you deal with? Like, it's not just focusing on one thing? It, it focuses on lots and lots of different things. Everything that's important to people that are in hospital now and people that work in hospitals now so it's all the current things that are happening that people there's things around food there's things about people's care there's things about interviewing staff there's things about care involvement reducing restrictive practice there's things about risk assessments and yeah. being involved in those recovery colleges recovery colleges <laughs> yeah nice segue lots, lots and lots of things and right. it's about sharing best practice as well we don't want people to have to reinvent the wheel if someone's already done some work on something we want them to shout about it and tell everybody which again, else which again again uh, yeah I think we, we said that yeah you said that before which is mm-hmm. a good point that yeah. um, you know if someone's worked on something and it's worked for them and then suddenly they go but this is the way we do things and I'm like good if it works for an individual why change it but it's about it's promoting the bureaucracy. choice yeah, promoting the, choice yeah, yeah. And, and giving options to people because I keep saying it's the key point is that every individual has different things so 
because I say if you had 100,000 people with bipolar disorder and they would all be treated differently, yeah. like for the most part. Yeah. And I, I see too many people that go, you should take what I'm taking. That worked for me. And I'm like, that doesn't, it's unfortunately the one aspect of life where you can't say that. It's not like, you know, no. cancer where it's like chemotherapy is the way yeah. to go, where it's like in mental health, it's like therapy it's may so work, exercise, exercise may work. I'm looking at um, transgender, trans gentle meditation because okay. I've heard that's good for bipolar disorder and I keep hearing people it's helped so I'm willing to try but my point is it might not work so yeah, yeah it's absolutely. very useful oh well, thanks guys for coming on it's really fun obviously I'm, we're going to do my podcast now but um, <laughs> but yeah so obviously huge thanks for coming on um, obviously if you listen to this on iTunes please do subscribe Mentally Sound uh, and we'll be back after this song uh, in the studio Guys, welcome back to Mountain Sound right here on Gravity Radio Northeast, and I apologise for the long delay. <laughs> I didn't realise that was a long song. That's the problem with when you uh, go on the database and just pick a random song, and it turns out to be the, the live, live version. version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I apologise for the seven minute delay, but I'm, I hope we were good company to Jenny while we, she was waiting. <laughs> but yeah, so that's why uh, that obviously was No Woman No Cry by Bob Marley, which was kind of. I don't know. Partly my fault. I selected it. Yeah. So we'll, 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 you know, we'll both take blame for that. I'm glad you took the blame. Yeah. That's, that's, what I was that's what I was waiting on. But anyway, uh, yeah, as I say, we have uh, Jenny Walwax here, uh, who's our guest uh, right now, who's here to talk about her foundation, which we've been joking about during the break, which is kind of funny. And uh, yeah, and so yeah, we're going to talk about that. She's got our own personal story to talk about as well, which, which, we're, which we're keen to hear about as well. There's obviously, she works for Mentors. Is that, is that the right word? Yeah. Uh, she mentors for the Dean Kelly Holmes Trust, which I'm fascinated about which obviously we mentioned uh, in the beginning of the show. So, hello, Jenny. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you too. Awesome. Uh, how are you? How are you? How was the trip down to Leeds? Leeds? Yeah, good, thank you. Okay. I enjoyed my trip to Newcastle. Mm-hmm. Did you how long have you been before to Newcastle? Yeah, I have a, I have a few months ago, actually, um, mm-hmm. and I love it here. It's great. Cool, awesome. I'm glad, I'm glad you're approved. Um, so, how did the, you know, we've obviously just touched on the fact that you met at the Dean Kelly Holmes Trust. When did that start for you? Like, how long have you been working there? I have been working for the Dame Kelly Holmes Trust for nearly three years now and it is something that I got into when I retired from playing sport professionally. I was a professional badminton player and um, after having sort of a career spanning over 10 years, it was it was something that um, tra- transition-wise is quite difficult for any athlete and um, I reached out to the trust who not only supports disadvantaged youths but uses athletes as a way of motivating and inspiring young people yeah. and Most at the same time as making you know as making the transition for professional athletes easier outside outside of sport which is fantastic so there's background to how we got Jenny here, which we're mm-hmm. all excited about. Um, just, I think it was in December, I happened to catch it. It was the BBC Lifeline appeal. And that was where yeah. Dame Helly, Kelly Holmes Trust made their pitch. It was very impressive. And we just got into a bit of a Twitter chat about it. Oh, and yeah, said okay. uh, they mentioned about wanting to set up somewhere up north, like a northern base. And mm-hmm. then she said, we'll send a mentor up. Little did I know they would send so, such an esteemed guest. So we're really, really excited about this. But, uh, so just quickly, Jenny, what, what, what was it about badminton which got you into it? What was it the... My parents played professionally, so right. my mum played for England, and my dad was also oh, an wow. international player as well. So it was in, it was in the blood, really. It was yeah. something that I loved from a very early age. Oh, what and was what was her name? What was your mum? My mum was called Jill Warwick. He's called okay. Jill Warwick, um, and they're both they're both badminton coaches now. Okay. So right. it's been a bit of a badminton family. I was trying to 
ones that were quite well known. Nathan, there's a one called Nathan. So Nathan Robinson, Robinson was yes. my my mixed doubles partner. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look at me with my <laughs> Check you with, with the badminton knowledge. Uh, who was the blonde? The blonde girl. Gail Evans. Gail Evans. Yeah. I've just threw I've just threw my notes in the bin. Sorry. Was that what was on there? Sorry, that's me. You've been doing a bit of badminton research. My geekiness is coming through. I have to say, no, one of the few things I enjoy playing because I'm not the most exercised person in the world is I do like a game of badminton I have badminton racket so I I did like watching the Olympics we were touching on this at the beginning of the show we were talking about Olympic events that we actually liked yeah and that was some of them Um, but yeah I wanted to touch on uh, the, the, the thing you just said earlier about about athletes moving on to something else because that's fascinating to me because if you take uh, I, I was touched on earlier on the show that I'm big into American sports and I don't know what the percentage is but it's something like 80% of uh, of uh, American athletes are broke within the first two years of them of them leaving whatever sport they're from because yeah. it's such a hard transition um, so I guess from, uh, I guess it's a very sort of outward look but do, are you kind of really uh, admirable to Kelly for for finding something that she can do after an athlete's ended that career, so to speak? Definitely. You know, I cannot thank the, the Dame Kelly Holmes Trust more um, for what they've done for me. And there's so many people within the Trust that uh, I'd, I would love to thank. There's too many to mention. But, I mean, the support they've given me after retirement is unbelievable. Yeah. And also the development that I've sort of been through myself, um, learning new skills and being able to develop and, and mentor young people has been sort of a life-changing moment for me and I, I really can't thank them enough and, and it's amazing now to be able to pass on what we've learned as athletes yeah. and give young people every chance in the world they have to, to succeed because mm-hmm. sometimes all they need is a helping hand and a bit of guidance and support and that's what the athletes look to do. Mm-hmm. And this was on the back of your own personal story, wasn't it? I mean... I remember you, you talked in the bio, I remember looking at your website about as you were climbing that ladder of ambition within your, your own field of sport and you obviously had a, a big talent, but that was obviously dovetailing with strict regimes about health and nutrition, about maintaining the right weight. Was that when you noticed things going wrong uh, within yourself and... What were those first telltale signs? Yeah, I think for me it was always a it was always a bit of a battle um, in terms of being a certain weight, a certain yeah. size, and, mm-hmm. and competing and having to you know not only the pressure you get externally but the pressure you put on yourself more importantly. Yeah. And for me, there was always that pressure that I put on myself, always striving to do better, mm-hmm. always wanting more from myself. Yeah. And um, it became a bit of an obsession, really. Mm-hmm. And and it wasn't until you know I, I knew that nutritionists and coaches were looking at me to lose weight that mm-hmm. that suddenly became a problem for me and something mm-hmm. I struggled with um, which then eventually led to an eating disorder mm-hmm. um, and at 20, 21 years old I started suffering with bulimia mm-hmm. um, and whether or not that would have still happened if I wasn't in professional sport I'll, I'll never know yeah. but you know the extent certainly must contribute though definitely yeah. I, think, I think the pressures that you get and having spoke to many athletes now since and being lucky enough to work with so many fantastic athletes that have been so successful in their career you realise how many people have struggled too it's something that you know I sort of have a varying interest in boxing and it's one of the things that they keep debating about in regards to and it happens in like UFC and other contacts, combat sports like that where they have weight classes and they binge they sort of binge lose weight because it's the best way of maintaining your strength beforehand and then they'll gain the weight like mm-hmm. pre-fight 
and people have they're, they're doing research a lot about that now to see how much of an actual effect just actually so my point is they're actively doing that as opposed to you having a problem which you can't control yeah they're actually doing it for mm. real and that can lead to so the, mm. the, the, the they're now debating whether actually that's a good idea and mm. and so yeah it happens right. across all sporting platforms but do you think it's a particular problem hidden within sport because when yeah, we maybe. when we think about sport I always, I always think of the word fun I think back to my own childhood I suppose when you're a professional like yourself yeah it, m- the pressure must have been enormous to to maintain that you know that level when you've got this going on in the background how hard was it for you I mean it was it was very difficult you know you want to do everything you can to succeed you want to put every single bit of effort you have into yeah. the sport you love and mm. that's exactly what I did and it wasn't until I started suffering with a mental illness mm. that I really started to struggle in all aspects of my yeah. life really and mm. what became a habit very very quickly became an addiction and mm. that was difficult to deal with at what point at what point I mean obviously if you feel uncomfortable at any point talking about anything yeah. feel free to feel free to say <laughs> I, I'm I'm intrigued to know because I have bipolar disorder which everyone knows in the show okay. and you know, obviously one of the things, especially when you're young, because you said 20, wasn't it? You said yeah, where, where this was sort of starting to happen. Yeah. Um, at what point did you feel that you knew you had a problem? Because that's kind of the hardest part about any disorder is that you don't know. I mean, I didn't know until my late teens that I had a real serious issue. Right. So what was it like for you? When did you actually know? I think for me, straight away I knew I was doing something I shouldn't be doing, okay. you know, and and initially it was all about losing weight, it was about having to be a certain size, but that very beca- very quickly became an obsession and addiction into binging and purging and and eating huge amounts of food um, and then and then purging, so it became, it did really become a, a cycle that just got worse over a period of time and I knew instantly that I was doing something wrong but it wasn't until you know a couple of years down the line when I I really felt like I was out of control that I needed to reach out for help. Mm -hmm. I also read before just just before about um, they were reluctant to diagnose you quite early on weren't they when you you knew there was something wrong but you say that you weren't underweight yet or something, is that right? Yeah, so my experience with GPs has been also very difficult, yeah. which is exactly why I wanted to set up my, my foundation. It was because, mm. you know, I, I went to my local GP. You know, don't get me wrong, I have had support mm. from a lot of people, but I, I went to a local GP who asked me, do I have proof of my bulimia? Yeah. Um, could I step on the scales mm. um, and then later to say we'll send you a letter home um, mm. and we'll let you know which support group you can join And that so I'm laughing because I have the same similar experience I'm not <laughs> right. laughing at you <laughs> it's just, I'm laughing because it's like I'm, I'm going through my memories of all my yeah. stuff I think we all have good Terrible. and bad I felt the need to say that because yeah. I was sniggering I was like I don't want to be I don't want to yeah. come across as yeah. offensive it's just no. I, I'm literally like reliving certain yeah. things here like, and, yeah, and I mean the letter that came home just said um you know, unfortunately, we can't let you join a support group because your BMI is not low enough. Yeah. So effectively telling someone who's opened up, you know, mm-hmm. for me, it was all thinking, I just, I've always loved working with young people. Mm-hmm. And all yeah. I was thinking about when this was happening to me was, what about the 17, 16-year-old girl mm-hmm. or boy that goes into a doctor's and tells them something that they were so afraid to tell them to be told, actually, you can't have support because you're not mm-hmm. thin enough. You know, that's, that's it's just crazy. like what we say about with depression. You know, yeah. it's a similar thing as if you, the, can't see it, if, you if you're not you're not depressed enough. I actually wrote a, mm-hmm. a, a blog that's been released today on mental mental health, which we've had on before, yeah. and I made the, the 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 point very similar to what you just said of 
the, the, the major problem I have with a lot of illnesses, and you can say this to a lot of stuff, which is makes to me even more relevant, yeah. is that, as you say, a GP's first port of call is to diagnose you with something. They yeah. have to make it look like they're doing things, but it's mm. not necessarily, to your point, something that actually really helps. No. It doesn't actually help the specific person. <clears throat> and if we're going to have a criteria where we want everyone to have the same thing, then why is it judged on how ill someone is? It should be the fact, like you say... How many times do you hear stories of people who are willing to share a story like that, mm. and a person goes, "No, I don't believe you." Mm. It's like myself. I don't it get was, that for at me, all. It, was, like it, it, should was, be, it should be like that across the board. GPs just put yeah. down yeah. my thing to teenage angst. It wasn't yeah. until I graduated. Yeah, yeah they I actually, think it actually diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. So yeah, I got diagnosed right. with uh, when I was sixteen. Uh, I was failing my A levels. I was uh, of GCSEs, no, uh, uh, and I'm. And I got special permission to do exams outside of everybody else. And right. not many people know this because I did this kind of privately. They were really great about it. But the problem was is I got diagnosed with severe depression. and But they just like, gave me medication and then sent me back. Yeah. And I would like sit down with my GP and give him a 10-minute <laughs> recital about how horrible my life is and yeah. how much I hated it. And yeah, they just... They just Going back just to what you saying uh, before about, the, help. about yeah. the weight issue, I mean, something else I campaign on is ethical fashion. Mm-hmm. Right. I know that you might have heard something called model's law that's being brought out because there's models out there who are so underweight that develop, the, the risk of development eating disorder is so high. Yeah. You, when you have these sort of um, hierarchy within the fashion industry, which can be a very cutthroat, brutal industry, as perhaps professional sport is, as, as you've alluded to. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you draw similar parallels to that? Do you see... Yeah, I think I think social media and and everything to do with that is is linked, and it, and it's very difficult, especially for the younger generation, yeah. to deal with that now. Mm. You know, I, I go and work in schools, and obviously with the Dame Kelly Homes Trust, working with young people on mm. a daily basis. And there's nothing worse than seeing people look uncomfortable in their own yeah. skin. And yeah. and it's hard to say that because I am one of those people. Yeah. But, you know, I just want to be able to help and support the people mm. that are also feeling that way. And by seeing, you know, certain magazines mm. and certain fashion shows and things like that, it, it is difficult. And the, media, the media aren't helpful either. I mean, you know, when they comment about image rather than, you know, talent. And it, do you feel that sometimes? Yeah, I, you know, I, I do think the, the amount of young people I've spoken to mm. that have said that they feel like social media is is one of the big reasons for them feeling the way they do it's it's got to be a contributing yeah. factor mm-hmm. um and all we can do and all we do as a you know as the trust do is try and empower and engage mm-hmm. with young people and try to get the very best out of them and make mm-hmm. them realize there's there's more to life and yeah. and you know and help them and support them as much as we can do you yeah. ever talk to them about because i know this is something that for example um I've forgotten the girl's name. What was the the um, triathlon or decathlon girl who got the gold medal last time? I've got her. Jessica. Ennis. Uh, Jessica Ennis, mm-hmm. Yes, and um, she she got, which I was really pleased about because she, you know, I, I know this is like a, a, a difficult subject matter because it was all about how good looking she is because mm-hmm. she is a good looking woman. Yeah, but. She got, I think it was something like Body of the Air or something like that, and 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 I was really, it, it got a lot of debate in the media, and it was almost like they were kind of not allowing her to kind of have that award, yeah. as in like, oh, why is this body being given it? And her response, I thought, was brilliant. Where it was, she basically said, well, it's nice to have an athletic body out there yeah. because they get scrutinised all the time because you know, especially you know, with with the way women's bodies change when they're athletes, mm. it's it's more noticeable than a guy yeah so i wanted to ask you during your time when you were doing it um was that ever a worry for you and are you pleased that 
it seems like it's at least we're debating about it and maybe it's getting a little bit better is that fair to say yeah i think it's fantastic you know jessica Ennis should be a role model of of every yeah, young person great. out she's, there she's, she's fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. and you know to look at someone so strong and so motivated and so successful as well you know that's that's what we want our young people to be mm. looking at as as a role model and i think it'll be you know the more we can push people into the line like that mm-hmm. like that the the better mm-hmm. well um, we've run out of time with it which is unfortunate because i could we could talk yeah, you forever um <laughs> we've got a million questions but um i want to obviously touch about we we touched on this so i want you to talk about it a little bit is your foundation because we were joking about you picked it as your own name <laughs> that was very funny because we were like you're typing it in going has anyone else got my has anyone else got the same name <laughs> so um tell us about that because um i think ricky's told me that is, am I right you're in the, proce- you're in in the, the process, process yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we're in the process of getting it registered at the moment, but we've already done our first fundraiser, which was an all-stars sort of mm. all the England badminton players coming to play and raise money for for the the um, charity. So that that's fantastic. And we've got a big fundraising ball on the 20th of February in the, at the Hilton Hotel in Leeds where we've got sort of 20 athletes coming from the Dame Kelly Holmes Trust to support the event, Brilliant. which is fantastic. So, you know, hopefully we can grow from here and really look to support as many people as possible. Best of luck with that. Thank mm-hmm. you. Are you so on? Are you on? Is there, is that have a, any internet presence? Is it, have you got a website? It or does. Like I have got a website. Um, yeah, it's the Jenny Wall Work Foundation um, And we have a, you know, you can follow us on Twitter and various things like that. But obviously yeah, you're at Jenny Wallwork on Twitter, aren't you? For your for your personal. Yes, one, yeah. I am. And um, um, Dame Kelly's Trust has a uh, Twitter as well, which is Dame Kelly's Trust. On it Twitter does. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we mentioned that, and also I just wanted to get into because we always ask people this about future stuff you have a fundraiser come, is it coming up is it, she is mentioned the spring spring ball yeah, the, oh is that the one you just did yeah Sorry. the spring okay. balls on the 20th of February so okay, right. um, yeah we've had lots of support for that which is fantastic so mm. we're really just looking to sort of make a big impact there and the support and the the people that have reached out so far to to really help has been it's been really touching so I, I wanted to ask because this is just the one the one final question I wanted to ask because I was really intrigued is how much would you say I know you may not be able to answer this 100% like with all the information, but um, whenever anyone like Dame Kelly Holmes gets a trust, the first thing people think is how involved is she? So how much would you say she is on her trust? Uh, I mean, she's so involved. Mm-hmm. She's she's fantastic. You know, every every big event we have, every celebration event we have for the young people, she's there. She's there to support. She's there to talk to the young people. You know, it's fantastic for them to be able to meet the person mm-hmm. who's set up such a fantastic charity. I also celebrate how candid she was on that pitch that I saw, the BBC Lifeline appeal. Mm-hmm. And she yeah. talked about her own depression and... Dealing, yeah. dealing that with, with her yeah, own in relation to a mental health yeah. show which yeah. is obviously is what we are yeah I remember when she first retired that she didn't want to like because she just was like what else do I do and yeah. it's again yeah. like you touched on earlier athletes go through this mm. all the time yeah. and it's just not really treated that because everyone was thinking oh you get you know if, you, if it's a more well known sport you got a bunch of money that's all you need to be happy and it's not true it must be yeah. a very but rewarding feeling I imagine yeah. isn't it to help those mental bring back it yeah. is it's fantastic you know yeah. the trust have helped over 200,000 young people wow. throughout the UK so far and you know it's just growing year by year and and Mm -hmm. Kelly has done a fantastic job so far and and I can only imagine that it will continue to grow. Hello this is Victoria Mentally Sound at Gravity Radio Northeast. I want to offer a huge welcome back to our resident poet Jules who's here today to speak about Christmas classic It's a Wonderful Life. 
Uh, it's been a while since we've recorded a film section. Um, huge shout out and hello to my usual collaborator, Wayne. Jules, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about why It's a Wonderful Life? Because this was an idea that you came up with quite a while back. And how does it link in with our whole mental health theme? Well, I chose it for two reasons, really. Basically, because it's my favourite film of all time. And secondly, because it's got a lot to do with mental health all the way through it. And not only that, but it shows all the factors that are involved in influencing people's mental health. Well, just before we carry on, I'm just going to give those of you who might not be familiar with this Christmas classic a brief overview. Mm. The film is from 1946, directed by Frank Capra. Basically, you have um, small-town America, uh, a guy with huge dreams and aspirations who, through various circumstances throughout his life, uh, makes choices for the benefit of other people that mean that his life becomes entrenched in small town America. He feels that he's almost unable to escape. He marries, he has children, he takes on his father's business and makes a great deal of personal sacrifice. Unfortunately, some tragedies happen sort of through the second act of the film and he's led to a point in life where it seems that suicide seems the only option. So, Jules, I'll let you start. Well, firstly, I want to say that the film's two hours, ten minutes long, and you don't realise it at all. Secondly, I want to say that I have been ill for uh, six months with the negative aspects of bipolar mood disorder, and one of the things you do there to fill the time up by doing pointless things, and I must have watched this film 30 times in the last six months just for something to do. Anyway, it's a really classic film, and it's famous... I dare anybody who watches it not to cry at the end. And any film that can make you cry has got to be classic in my mind. The Tears of Joy. I don't think we're spoiling it, are we, if we say that it ends on Tears of Joy. Any film that involves uh, children being reunited with parents, things like that, because I've got personal experience that. And I think that's the reason that this film touches me quite significantly is because... Because of my borderline personality disorder, I do not live at home with my family Mm -hmm. and with my children. So a lot of this film resonates with me because George Bailey, the main character, is a man who seems to have it all, a nice family, a nice home, uh, a good job. It, It seems like all so many of the things were told are perfect. And I think what really hits me about this film is I had those things. I had a career, I had a nice house and was married with children. And yet still, I had a breakdown. And a lot of people will ask me, well, why? Why did that happen to you? How could that possibly happen? You had everything there. You had all the love, all the support. And I can completely uh, connect with the character of George Bailey because... Partly, I felt that I didn't feel that I deserved all those good things. The other people in my life deserved other good things, but not me. And partly, I felt trapped by that goodness that I had in my life. Like George Bailey, who dreams of travelling the world, of having a huge career, of being bigger than the small town he was born in. Not ever resenting or feeling stifled, but I suppose in a way worrying that if I did feel that way and worrying about the guilt it might bring 
Does that make sense at all? It's a very good point, but I, I look at it the other way, this film. I look at it, and obviously it's a personal thing, it's that for you. Me, I actually see bipolar in this film. I wouldn't say the James Stewart character is really manic, but all the things that are involved are sort of there. I see the bipolar um, attitudes more, actually, in the um, the uncle, the one who's forgetful and puts the... The rings of, of a string on his uh, finger to remind him to do things. Uncle Billy. Uncle Billy. Now, he, he, he reminds me definitely of, of that. The main thing, really, is, as you said, it highlights, the film itself highlights the things that can make you depressed. We, we had a, a bit of a debate before about a quote that I found. Even the intervention of people is insufficient to save the hero whose despair puts him beyond the help of human agency. It's true that George's friends and beneficiaries come together to make good on the building and loans shortfall. Uh, basically, some money is lost at the place that he works, and that's part of the trigger into serious depression and um, sort of suicidal feelings. But that only addresses his superficial and immediate problem. We know what really saves him and what keeps him alive so the community can band together. Divine intervention. And again, just before I go to Jules, because I know you quite strongly had feelings about that quote, but I'll just explain that basically um, George has lost a sum of money through no fault of his own, despite the love of his family and his community. He's panicked, he's feeling trapped, he's feeling in despair, and he contemplates uh, suicide on the edge of a... A bridge. In this case, within the uh, world of the film, an angel is sent down because of the prayers of his loved ones in order to guide George into seeing what the world would be like without him. The, the implication is that religion plays a part in getting better for mental health, is it? Is that what you're saying to me? Well, yeah. I don't... I don't think that. I think it's just a, a feel-good movie about people helping someone who's in distress. And to make them realise that they're important and that's the that's the main thing there when you're talking about mental health is that the way that you establish that you're important in life and people show that you're important in life lifts your mood and makes you feel as if you want to live and that's what this film does all the way through and looking at the film Clarence the Angel I watched it you know when I first started watching it again I was surprised how little of the film he takes. But when you think about the film afterwards, that's all you ever really think about, isn't it? Do you agree? Yes, very He only takes up like uh, like ten minutes of the film or something uh, out of the two hours. And uh, but he's the most obviously the most important character in it, uh, apart from George. When you mentioned earlier on, looking back at your first comment, what the film shows is that George. Uh, James Stewart is doing loads of good things all the time, putting himself out, sacrificing, and he may feel, like we all do, that I'm doing all this stuff, and why am I the one to suffer? That is, well, it's a shame, isn't it, in life? The the important thing, again, to remember is that when that does happen, often uh, there's nothing that anybody can do about it, is there, until it's too late. I am not religious i don't believe that for me mm-hmm. divine intervention would be the solution mm-hmm. i do agree with the part where talking about you know you can have all the great friends and family in the world and they can address some of your immediate problems they can help you out with mm-hmm. money they can be there to support you and have a couple with you but when it comes to long-standing mental illness when it says divine intervention for me it's been certain service intervention and my own personal 
intervention, intervention of certain wonderful special friends. But Well, I would say, for me, it's important, actually, I think this film is good, but it's not necessarily, it's not real life, is it? When we, I mean, you're fortunate, Victoria, in that you've got a, a backup system or whatever, friends and family. A lot of people haven't. I haven't, really, to be honest. Uh, you know, and what do people who are living on their own, how do they cope you know, old people and... Do you think that certain people would take comfort in seeing a film like this, that if they are lonely, that there is warmth and and love out there and that that warmth and love can make a difference? Well, that is exactly why the film makes you cry, because you're thinking about this when you're watching it. It could be me, and it's so good that happy endings come. You know, well, it just makes them feel as if they... Actually, it probably makes them feel as if they would be prepared to do do that for someone else, if I think about it. If you watch that film, you actually want to help other people, don't you, in a way? The feel-good feeling, it makes you feel kind of human and... I think the overall message of the film, Mm -hmm. because it is basically, like you said, it's only the last part of the film, but when the angel comes and and shows uh, Mm -hmm. George, James Stewart, what the world would be like without him, and the world without him is a dark and bleak and quite depressing place, and all the good that he's ever done is obviously not done. Worst thing anyone ever says to me is, just think what the world would be like without you, how sad we would feel without you, and do you think that that's the right message or not? Yeah, I do. We've both been through thoughts of suicide and severe depression. And um, our mind, we lose total total control of rationality. So people can tell us things and we don't listen. And in truth, we know in our own minds that it would be a stupid thing to do, don't we? We know at the back of our minds that we are going to leave people worse off through grief, whatever else, you know. But we're that desperate... And we feel so low in ourselves that we feel as if we're not not worthy of being alive. And it's sad to say that, isn't it? That's how strong the mind can be when you, depending on the um, factors that are involved and also the the type of mental mental health you you have. Before we finish, I just one other thing I want to say that is important about this film is it's in black and white, and I think that makes a tremendous difference to the feel and compassion of the film. You know, it makes it feel more homely. I think it adds to the, the mythic and the whimsical and the, the sort of lighter elements of the film, which helps you to then see the darker undertones much more mm. clearly. The contrast between mm. the two, the, the sort of the fantasy and the reality and the, the light and the dark, I think shows up so beautifully in black and white. Uh, I think it'd be a great idea to do another one on the, on this subject. And if I was going to suggest a film, I would obviously say One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Would you agree with that? I think it or is a film that has been analysed an awful lot, but I do think that the mentally sound way of looking mm-hmm. at things would be is good. Uh, quirky and unique enough to make our own take on it quite interesting. Great, so if you could email us at mentallysoundradio at gmail.com and I want to offer a huge welcome back to Jules. You've been much, much missed. We hope to hear much, much more of you in the future. I mean, suicide is obviously um, something that is covered 
quite a bit in the media and in films and television. But if you are genuinely experiencing any sorts of thoughts of suicide, please get in touch with either your GP, um, a mental health practitioner, someone, anyone that you trust. Do not suffer alone and keep yourself safe. So from uh, Mentally Sound here on Gravity Radio, we want to thank everyone for listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to uh, the uh, Service User Award uh, 2016 at Signet. Uh, and obviously, I'm here as part of Geek Populous Podcast as well as Mentally Sound Radio Show on Gravity Radio Northeast, and I'm delighted to say one of the men, one of the men, or, or should I say, well, one of the group of people who decided to nominate our very show, Mentally Sound, which we obviously were really, really honoured to do so, is here to talk to me. You very kindly introduced us all on stage, so I'm here with the fabulous Mick. Hello, sir. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to her, and obviously I guess it makes sense being that we're part of uh, Mentally Sound, as he just sits and gets a dessert, is that we're here to um, ask you about, obviously we're hugely honoured that you nominated us and being part of that team, I guess the first question being that you're on our radio show is to ask you why did you pick us? Um, well, we were just really intrigued with, uh, with, the, uh, with the submission that you put in. Um, it, was, it, was, it was so different uh, to, to, to all the other submissions uh, most of the submissions come in from secure mental health services there were there were a couple in our category I don't know if you noticed which yes. which represented a wider uh, a kind of wider community and, and we just thought what you were doing was really really interesting mm-hmm. um, thought it was creative looked fun yeah a um, uh, lot of humor in there but some you know serious topics woven in there you know anything with music running through it as a thread gets my vote anyway I'm, very, uh, I'm a very musical person so we just thought it was a really interesting and, uh, and creative way to uh, to get a message out there great what uh, what kind of music are you into just because I'm curious uh, I like all sorts of stuff I'm very yeah. very eclectic so I like a lot of rock music I like ska music I like folk music um, bits and pieces of, of opera and classical music I like everything <laughs> a big fan of Glastonbury Festival actually oh, I right. tried, tried to go to Glastonbury Festival most years although we haven't got tickets this year disappointingly but uh, <laughs> but you know anything with music we, we've been through it I think is a great way to bring people in and it's you know it's non-threatening so we just thought what you were doing was really really interesting and I'm, I'm actually like you know I guess that that's mainly made me sort of proud in the sense of you've not like that's not uh, and I guess I'm speaking for everyone involved in the radio show. That's that's not by accident. Like we actually sat there and debated long and hard about being that we kind of like almost I guess in the realms of entertainment is that we. It's it's pleased you said that there's some jokes in there and that we kind of don't take ourselves too seriously because um, I think that's kind of um, relevant. And I guess from your point of view, judging and being part of this whole process, do you do you think that's kind of the best way of getting people to be more aware of mental health and understanding it more? Do you think that's the best pro- approach? Uh, I, I do, actually. Um, you know, I think there's a the, there's a tendency sometimes to be too serious about all this. And, you know, we're, we're involved with uh, nine recovering outcomes groups nationally. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've been involved with this probably for the last seven or eight, uh, eight years, particularly in Yorkshire and the Humber. Great. And, you know, one of the key things in there is, you know, we do some good work and it's important, serious stuff, but we have a laugh yeah. while we're doing it. And, you know, service users don't want dry, boring material. You know, they want to be engaged. You know, they've got enough difficulties in life, you know, without somebody pouring more kind of serious, heavy stuff on them. So, you know, it's got to be, it's got mm. to be light-hearted, it's got to be entertaining to, to pull people in. So, you know, that, that is really what, well, not not the only thing, but one of the key things that mm. did appeal to us about what you were doing was how, you know, how 
inventive it was in that respect. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of ticked with what we were cool. what we were thinking as well, really. And I guess because we're a media outlet, I feel it's appropriate to talk about the other nominations as well. Because obviously, from your point of view, yeah. looking yeah. at them all, I mean, because what I liked and you touched you've just touched on this before is the diversity of uh, the diversity yeah. of the nominations. So I guess what appealed to you in relation to the other nominations and obviously the one that won? Um, well, I think the, uh, the, the, the well, all the nominations were very different and. Uh, you know, I guess it was probably that difference that that that, that, that appealed across the uh, across the board. There was another um, there was another uh, nominee, uh, which was a big mental health trust uh, in Manchester, where they'd been using digital. Um, they called it digital patient stories. I think they, they they called it. But you know, that was uh, that was little short montages, talking heads of people. You know, who directly had experience of services that yeah. that week, speaking to the camera, talking about what it had been like, whether it had been good, bad, rubbish. Sharing funny stories, and those, you know, those stories went straight back to the trust board. Yeah. So, you know, the, the directors, um, all the non-executive directors, had direct access to that feedback. So, you know, again, like yourselves, using a bit of media in a creative way to get a to get a message across. We, we you know, we liked uh, we, we liked that one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the the nominee that won the soapy subs car wash. I mean, I, I thought the uh, I thought the presentation that the two guys from there did was uh, was was you know was fantastic and what we liked about that was they'd worked that through from start to finish yeah and they'd managed to negotiate all the bureaucracy in the hospital with business cases and risk assessments you know raising raising you know a little bit of capital money to get to get this uh, to get this going and they've gone from a you know a tiny enterprise to to what could actually be a really successful small business out in the community mm. all that out of a secure mental health service yeah we so we actually think that's something that was it might happen with us that we might actually become self sufficient yeah. Yeah, you know, and and the other two, uh, the other two uh, uh, nominations, Tuve, um up in Middlesbrough, which yes. is which is almost in your part. Yeah, not far. Not, yeah, not 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 relatively speaking. You know, <laughs> they're generally a really good organisation yeah. for uh, for user in, for user involvement, and this this uh, Ridgeway Awards really, you know, just encapsulates all that. It's a you know, it's a big uh, a big celebration, um, and the the, the 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 final nominee, the Stockton Hall, you know the. The football thing. Well, I'm a you know I've been a season ticket holder at Leeds United all my adult life. You know, I've suffered the ups and the slings and arrows. <laughs> of I was outrageous, say, yeah, not the slings and arrows of outrageous. I just fortune. watched. I just watched an episode of Premiership years where Leeds were doing quite well, like, oh, but not yeah. anymore. Yeah, <laughs> no, well, we, we've been we've been okay, right though. we've been right up there and right down there in uh, in my time. But you know, I, I, I love football and I yeah. love what I love what it can what it can do for a community and represent for a community. So it was it was fantastic to see that again. It, you know, coming out of a secure mental health service, there was, uh, you know, this opportunity for, for the whole hospital community to get involved with a local uh, club, not just on the playing side and in the backroom side, but, you know, building up the club's website and, you know, taking a real active part in the clubhouse. So, again, that was a, that was a, you know, all those, all, all the entries were, you know, really inspirational. Yeah, no, which all, is, all five that were it's ob- yeah, it's obviously all, uh, an honour that we were nominated and, like, uh, you know, as I, you're quite right in what you've just said. I mean, um, just uh, a quick segue is to say that um, football and sport in general actually comes up on our show quite regularly. We've had people on talking about the impact that it has and I used to play football growing up, so I understand stand the sporting element of making it easier on mental health i guess the one question that's come up and i interviewed alice just before interviewing you and the one thing that comes up that makes a lot of sense to me is is talking about the like being universally service user only and that's something as you would have heard in my speech something we did deliberated on 
uh, right from the offset about making it just service users only, and we and I and I was one of the people that that was against that premise because uh, I made the the metaphor of the putting up the fence. When if we're the ones putting up the fence, then that makes no sense. Where as you want everybody involved and all different aspects to be involved in it, and also to have people like people like Alice from NHS England to have a chance to speak. So, uh, do you think? The, the sort of uh, the view that we're taking on that is the is the fair one, and I guess the one that makes the whole situation better for everybody. Um, that's a tough question, which um, is why I ask these things. Yeah, that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough question. I, I was going to ask you to hit the pause button so I could think about it, but I'm, I'm, my view is yep. that is that that's the right approach. Um, uh, I involvement doesn't just mean service users it means it means everybody yes so staff are working services uh, people who've got relatives who are, who are placed in services and using services and the communities that services are based in um, you know that really to me is the only way to break down some of the barriers and some of the and some of the stigma so you know I first became involved in uh, in, in, in projects like this in Yorkshire and the Humber mm-hmm where we had, a, we had a strategy called Reaching Joint Solutions for Secure Mental Health Services, and that was very much about staff and service users working together in partnership to improve um, the experience of living in and being in services and working in services. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so everybody, everybody gets something out of that. So, you know, my, my worldview is, you know, that's the best way to drive things on and make things better. I think the danger, if it becomes a... You know, a service user only forum is it? It kind of becomes political and a bit yeah. of a, a bit of a lobby group, and you know that that's important. You know, and I think I think if you look at what's going on in government at the moment, you know, I don't think mental health has ever had such a pri- yep. uh, such a priority uh, in central government. So you know, that sort of thing's important. I'm not saying it's not, but I think you know, I think sometimes it can alienate people. Yeah. So so pulling everybody in, making it everybody's business, I think is. Uh, is for me that is the right way to go. So I, you know, we love your approach. I think yeah, I think you'll hit the nail on the head with it, really. I, I just say that because it's it's strange that we obviously think it's the right it's the right approach as well, but um, we do occasionally get criticism for doing it that way, just on the premise of like, for example, you, you touched on politics, which uh, for my, my my personal podcast, Geek Apocalypse, I, I actually like actively try and avoid politics for that very reason that um, it can, as you say, sort of alienate people yeah. from the purpose, but. As you say, though, it doesn't mean, I guess, our point, I guess, to generalise what you just said, is to say that it's not ignoring the elephant in the room, though, at the same time. And I think that's the problem with service users is, I guess, in the sense of there's nothing wrong with having people say their opinion because, obviously, that's important. But um, it doesn't happen to everybody like that all the time. And and I, I just said in relation to Alice with the NHS, for example, that... It doesn't mean that the NHS, because I have a bad story about what happened to me, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the NHS is bad on a whole or the people that are in it are bad. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the, the thing that I'm concerned is, and I guess from a journalistic point of view, is to make sure we, we're not unfair in that aspect. So I guess that's the approach. Yeah. Um, I guess just because you touched on this as the final question just quickly is to say that you said you've been involved in this for, what was it, seven, eight years? Uh, since uh, since 2008, uh-huh. uh, in, in an active way, as a commissioner, mm-hmm. I've been involved in, in networks of service users and staff. Uh, working together to drive improvements in services. So I guess the the final question is being that we're obviously at the national uh, the award uh, 2016 is to ask you what do you think the main fundamental reason for doing an award ceremony like this is for? Uh, I just think it's about uh, recognition of, of all the hard work that goes on in services. Um, you know beyond what is normally expected. You know the dynamic partnerships that are formed between. 
between service users and staff, between organisations um, working together to, to drive things on. So I think it's just a celebration of the of the whole system. You know, the secure mental health system has changed out of all recognition yeah. in the last eight or nine years in, in the way, you know, people are now involved as active partners in their care journey. You know, they're no longer done till they're done they're done with and there's so much more creative work going on now which is really as a direct result of all this so an event like today is, is really an opportunity to celebrate uh, a lot of those good things that are happening and, 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 and share ideas and, and that kind of thing so. What a great way to end. Uh, all, all it leaves me to say on behalf of everyone on Mentally Sound, just thank you so much for considering us and nominating us. And uh, Hi, this is Steve O'Driscoll reporting for Mentally Sound. And today I've got the pleasure of speaking to Stephen Wedderburn, who works freelance at Launchpad and is a good colleague and friend of mine. And he's here today to talk to us about the Atos Medicals and the process that you go through. So welcome, Stephen. Um, could you just tell us a little about the, bit about the process of the Atos Medicals? Uh, yes, um, you get a form called an IB50 to fill in. Okay. Um, this is one of the few forms now that you have to do um, on a piece of paper that all other forms for applying for benefit are usually done on expensive phone lines or uh, done on computer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this IB50, uh, you've got to meet certain criterion, um, which are plucked out of the air right. to meet. And um, if the person who assesses the form and um, makes the decision, the decision maker, yeah. uh, doesn't think you um, meet the criterion, then... You're, you don't get, get uh, invalidity benefit or um, any kind of sickness benefit. Um, then, uh, as me, uh, I, I've uh, been through four um, ATOS reviews. Well, that's a lot, Stephen. That must be quite daunting, is it? And worrying as well, I think, at the same time. It is an exceptionally harrowing experience. Um, and I got the support from North Tyneside Disability Forum. Brilliant. Um, unfortunately, I've heard that they've um, now been uh, underfunded and had to close their doors. Mm. And it's the same all over these uh, help groups. Yeah, there's been a lot of cuts, hasn't there, to, to um, kind of support groups as well that are vital for people in the community. It's absolutely horrendous, Steve. Um, yeah. All I can say is that... If you haven't got the support, it's going to be a very, very bad process. It was bad enough when you got the support. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when I was seeing North Tyneside Disability Forum, who were helping me fill in the forms, I'm no, absolutely no good at filling in forms. Mm -hmm. I don't think logically enough. And a lot of them, um, the questions on them forms are quite repetitive, Stephen, because I've also been through the process myself. Um, they do everything they can, Steve, to catch you out. Yeah. If yeah. one answer doesn't correlate with another, therefore uh, ask you further questions. And um, basically, once um, once you get the decision, um, as I did, um, you either decide to fight the decision or uh, 
get job seekers allowance right and in in your sort of like experience of the atos medicals would you advise people to challenge the decision to get if it's not the one that they're looking for yes i would but be prepared for a long drawn out stressful battle uh-huh. because these um atos medicals are conducted by people who are just filling in a form on a computer um, who hardly ever look at you uh, when they ask you questions Mm -hmm. and they're so busy looking at the computer screen trying to fill in a tick box questionnaire which has ready set answers and they adapt what you say to those uh, um, sort of online answers they've got it's it's a nasty process right so no doubt I mean when you're saying they're staring at the computer you'll probably when you were in that uh, interview probably felt like they weren't even listening to what you were saying it wasn't person centred it was just it's certainly not it's certainly not they're more interested in computer the computer than Uh uh, it's not person centred at all and could I just ask you because um I was refused benefits, but I pushed myself into work. When you put an appeal in for your benefits around mental health, is your money suspended until you get the decision overturned, or what um, happens there? You uh, get the basic rate of job seekers allowance or employment support allowance, which is about £73 a week. Right. If you pass the... Um, Tribunal, or um, you would get an extra £30 a week, which is what I'm on now. And um, that, while waiting for that um, tribunal decision, uh, decision makers decision, it's very, very stressful. Yeah, I mean, did it affect your mental health at all? Going through the, the, the medical or the assessment four times, it sounds quite daunting. Uh, very much so. It was um, I got extremely run down, mm-hmm. um, extremely worried. Um, I wasn't financially secure. Um, I didn't know who to talk to except for Launchpad. Yeah. And uh, they eventually, on my third assessment, they wrote a letter to the tribunal, which was taken into account. And um, the the judge uh, informed his clerk to phone me up and said, you don't need to come in. We've accepted everything you've had to say. Right. Um, right. So all thanks to Launchpad for that letter. But um, the, whole, the process still is debilitating, you know, it's almost as if your your future depends on this one assessment. Yeah, because I, I remember mine. I mean, I was volunteering here at Launchpad, and when I got that letter through the door, my heart dropped, and I just didn't know what to expect. And, I mean, on day-to-day life now, Stephen, do you, do you kind of feel pressurised into doing things that you don't want? Because I would imagine there's some days you probably don't feel too good. Do you feel that you're badgered into, into doing permitted um, hours? I'm... Um, Feeling a lot happier now um, I've got this ESA support, but it runs out at the end of this year, and I have thinking and I have to 
go through this whole process again. Uh, but I'm going to talk to Alistair Launchpad um, if, well, as soon as he comes in um, and just let him know that I am getting increasingly worried at what's going to happen mm-hmm. because um, you read the papers, uh, you watch TV and it's all bad news and it's it going to get worse. Yeah, and I mean every day they'll make a decision and then a couple of weeks later they'll, they'll reverse the decision and they'll pressurise people and it's making people unwell and I believe that some people have actually took their own lives through benefits. I believe um, you're right in saying people get so distressed and they don't um, have anyone to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, men especially are very bad at revealing their feelings. That's it. It's a macho thing, isn't it? Sometimes. It is indeed. And it's yeah. worse in this area of the country as well. Um, yeah. You know, um, all the heavy industry, we worked for a living, we provided for our families. Yeah. And then uh, the whole world come crashing down because they're no lo- they see themselves as no longer um, a viable person. Yeah. And they're yeah. not providing for their families and they might have to w- rely on their wives a bit more. And it's, um, it's horrendous. It's horrendous. I mean, there are people who don't know what's happening. There are people who are, don't care what's happening. And uh, um, the rest of us in this mire of um, just benefit sanctions and so on, it's horrendous. It really is very bad indeed. Yeah, thanks for that, Stephen. And I understand now that you're doing a bit of permitted work for Launchpad. How does that make you feel? Does it give you a, a sense of structure in your life? And how do you feel about that? I feel very good about that. Good. Um, it actually makes me feel great. The only thing um, that's happened is there is a legal loophole. While you're on ESA support, you can do permitted work for longer than 52 weeks, right. which I have been doing. But as soon as I lose the ESA support, which I think I will at the next assessment, because um, when you first meet me, I look better than I was. Yeah, yeah. But um, and I think the, the Atlas people will only go on first impressions and... Definitely, if you yeah. don't shake while you're giving an interview, you don't lost, get yeah. you, you don't get um, the um, go ahead. And one of the things, if you make your own way there to the actual venue where these uh, people are, you've uh, failed your medical. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, can I just say, Stephen, um, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today, and can I just wish you luck with any uh, medicals you have in the future and and hope that your health stays good. It's been Thank a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Stephen. Well, we're, on, we're pressed for time, obviously, because we were 20 minutes late. So what I want to do now, uh, with having 20 minutes left of the show, as I see on the clock, is to get your uh, get your guest in. Good, sir. Do you want to introduce uh, who you brought with us, brought with yourself today? I have the Sorry. pleasure of in- introducing uh, Jason Wilkes, who is a ex-soldier. He served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Wow, awesome. He was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. and uh, he's come in to tell us about his experience and during and after since he's come back. So, say hi to Jason. 
Hi, Jason. Hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being on. So what I think how this is going to work, because you you um, got him in, do you, do you have any questions you want to say to him? Yeah, and I think what we'll do is yeah. we'll we'll just, me and Sharon will just, if we want to want to add uh, add anything to it, we'll do that. So it'll be awesome. Careful. Careful. There's technical error. <laughs> you dropped the mic. So Jason, uh, just just give us a give the listeners a background about your tour of duty and how long you served, please, Jason. Um, basically, um, I've served um, 21 years in the Royal Engineers, um, but um, unluckily for myself, um, back in 2006 uh, in April, um, it was actually on um, Good Friday, mm-hmm. uh, we were going out to do uh, a route recce for the Americans, because um, we used to do all the recce's for them um, whilst we were out there, and um, like you're saying, unluckily for us, um, someone decided to drive a suicide car bomb alongside my um, CVRT tank and um, blew themselves up. And it was then immediately after were you discharged? Was it after that? No, no. In in two thousand and six, you mean I, I spent a year on the sick, um, and I went back to work in um, two thousand and seven. And it was only um, February last year that I was medically discharged, um, suffering with post traumatic stress disorder and a couple of other things. Okay, so upon your return, um, what were your first symptoms? Your those telltale early telltale signs that you knew that something was wrong. Um, you mean I was injured in the April, um, and when I come home, um, like you say, I was at home with um, my mum and dad, and they were looking after me. Um, I sort of knew there was something wrong. Um, you mean I boxed um, for the regiment um, and different things, and um, I was in tune with the way I was feeling, uh, the yeah. anger and aggression and frustration I, I was on top of. But after the incident, coming home um, and sort of being left at home by the military. Um, I noticed a, a change in the way I was thinking about things and how angry and frustrated I was getting. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I call it the flash to bang time. Um, something would happen and I would I would be angry and frustrated straight away. And also my parents mm-hmm. sort of knew. Um, and it was the, it was sort of September time when I actually got some help. Okay. Um, just to give you guys and listeners some statistics here. Um, recent, I think it was on the BBC, but. Uh, back in 2012, there was like 5,000 soldiers who were used as case studies, and 74% of those uh, had a form of mental illness. Uh, that meant that one in five military personnel returning from Iraq and Afghanistan suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. So this is a lot m- com- more common than people realise. Um, yeah, it is, and you know, I mean, th- th- you mean those figures are probably uh, a lot worse now. You mean yeah. combat stress? Is mm. figures have gone up fifty percent with mm. people, and the MOD and the government are, are sort of um, not willing to to release these statistics. Mm. That just turn around and saying things are getting better. You know, what I mean, I, I've been through it all and different things. That I never got a lot of help and support mm. um, from this, mm. and you know, what I mean, I think a lot of it's getting brushed under the carpet, and the, and the focus is, is more on um, visible injuries that you can actually yeah. see. Yeah. And we'll get on to that in a sec, because that was going to be another question. But just to compare things with um, over in America, who uh, obviously uh, with the amount of wars that they've curtailed in, uh, come back with a lot of these problems, but. Every 65 minutes, a veteran takes their own life. That's roughly 22 people a day. And in terms of the suicides happening over in America, uh, 20% of that accounts for veterans. But as you've just seen there, Jason, so in your experience, describe the comparison between soldiers seeking help for mental health and PTSD problems compared to those seeking help for physical injuries. 
Um, well, well, through you mean what I've been through and different yeah. things that are, um, with with my condition. You mean in, in, in the military, a lot of guys who were injured, um, who, who were amputees or anything. I go through Headley Court, yeah. which is a fantastic facility. Had a lot of money spent on it and different things like that. Myself um, and a lot of my friends who have got mental health problems, there's no hospital that we go to mm -hmm. or anything like that. The DCMHs, which is the top Department of um, Mental Health, mm -hmm. are in Catrick and, and they're spread all over, but they're actually struggling, struggling there, laying people off and different things like mm -hmm. that. So there's a, there's a massive, massive difference of the effect of um, people with mental health problems mm -hmm. compared to physical problems, and, and we're sort of playing um, second fiddle to a lot of it. It's amazing, isn't it? Because we talk about a Cinderella service between amongst you know, you 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 guys and civilians that compared to people with physical injuries, we we are second fiddle. But it's interesting in the army community that goes on as well. Um, but in terms of, uh, I mean, I'll, my own my own experience. I mean, I've been diagnosed with PTSD as well. My issue happened within sort of suburban life, and this is why I like talking to soldiers like yourself because. Even though our experiences are quite poles apart, we share certain traits. I was speaking to Jason the other day, and we were talking about things like, you know, when trauma catches up on you, that we have these certain methods to cope, like, you know, hiding weapons under the bed, things like that. You can go to those extremes, and that's what it's, that's what it's like. So I would get those flashbacks as well. Um, how often were your flashbacks, Jason? Um, the actual incident that we, we were talking about with the knife and stuff, that was another incident I was involved in in 2009. Mm. There was a shooting incident in Northern Ireland where two guys um, were killed, and I was one of the first responders to that incident. Yeah. And um, basically, I started um, sleeping with, with a cookery knife under mm -hmm. my bed because I was, I was scared in case people were coming to get me or coming mm -hmm. to try and kill me. So that was the same sort of thing that, that, we, that we were talking yeah. um, to about that. You yeah. mean, um, I would sleep with that knife every night under my bed, you know mm -hmm. what I mean, just for those things. I, in a way, I sort of knew I was safe, but... Mm. I was subconsciously thinking that I wasn't safe, so that's why I did it. You know what I mean? And mm. I was, you know what I mean. A lot of people didn't know this and different things. Like that, you know what I mean? But people mm. did, and um, I was given no help and support mm. um, while serving, and I was having these nightmares and flashbacks um, every night and different things. Like that. And the quality of, of help and support that I was getting for the CPNs at the time mm. was was absolutely atrocious. Oh. I just want to no, ask. Just this is something I, I when I when I read that you were coming on. One of the things that that I wanted to ask you because obviously this is a this is a massively important thing. And actually, one of the things that my sister does is she's a historian and she she works. She's a curator. And she's currently moved to a Black Blackpool museum, but she did Preston, uh, the Harris Museum, for quite a long time. And one of the things that she's writing a book on actually is about help for, for war you know for war veterans for war, whatever however you want to phrase them um, and how like the charities helped in the second world war and various other things and one of the things that i read in school was regeneration uh, i don't know if you've ever read that book but it but the it was about singford Sassoon and wilfred owens um who served in the war how they got treated in a hospital after the war after being discharged and back into society that was the first um, world war though first world war yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But I'm saying, like, my, my sister's the second one, and yeah, yeah, that was the first one, yeah. Um, and it blew my mind then mm -hmm. how they treated people then. Yeah. And yet you hear in the, the limited sort of... Because it's, it's almost... I don't know whether I'm right in saying this, but it, I have the perception of that it's sort of... We still are, are so unwilling to talk about what happens to people who go to war after the fact, like, what happens to them when they get yeah, home. Yeah, because, you mean, a, a lot of it gets glorified and stuff like that, mm -hmm. Um 
but then what we left with is what we left with and you know what I mean when you've got a mental mental health problem and stuff there's such a bravado in the military that there's still a lot of stigma that's attached to it because people think you're rough tough soldiers you can go through anything yeah. well you mean I boxed I was a hard man and different things I didn't think this th- these sort of things would affect me but but it did so mm-hmm. what I'm saying to everybody it doesn't pick who it's going to affect or who it doesn't affect it just happens um, and, and, and so, you know, I mean, back in the First World War, Second World War, it was called battle shock and all these different other yeah. things. Mm-hmm. You mean it's called PTSD, but people were getting executed um, for running away and different things. That because nobody understood it. Where now we understand it, but we're still not doing anything about it. You know what I mean? This, well, also th- given horrible injections and basically told that they, they, they just need to get over it, which is, I suppose, without, obviously, it's a horrible thing that you, you know, the horrible of war, the, the, how difficult war is, but... In a, in a sense, do you think it's fair to say that like it's, you're still fighting the stigma of the that it's yeah. it's not a it's not a problem that you know you just have to get over it and you have to try harder and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, you mean you mean you just get the the the, the same old phrases and um, man up, get on yeah. with it and stuff like that. Which or I guess the, we both share. Is yeah, the point I'm making. Yeah, you mean and like you're saying in the military, it's let's go and have a drink. Let's go and have a drink and what? Um, get drunk and have a fight, and that makes everything better. And this is this is the problem, you know what I mean? I, I stopped drinking because I had a few issues yeah. with my medication, but also I, I was scared of if I had a drink and I lost control, you know what I mean? I'm an unarmed combat instructor. I boxed. I'm a pretty big guy. When would you stop? So I took that that equation away and stopped drinking and different things. Like that. But in the military, it's all about drinking. You know, I mean, friends of mine have gone through the same sort of situation where they were just told, well, you mean, stop being a wuss and pack it in with this PTSD and this depression stuff. Well, what sort of attitude is that? And these are senior people, RSMs, sergeant majors, people who are, who are supposed to be in charge of people. And the military are doing these courses and, and basically saying how to look for PTSD, how to look for mental health, and, and put, mm-hmm. signpost these guys in the correct way. It's still not getting done. It's okay, everybody coming out with these stats and statistics. The military is saying, yes, it's getting better, it's getting better, and different things. You mean, let's stop saying it's getting better and let's actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because yeah. to, to me, it's a bit of a joke. Well, I also think as well, and I think that that's the, that's kind of the point you're making is that to say it's better is to not say that everyone's being treated. Like that's ultimately what the goal should be. The goal should be that everyone should be treated the same and get the same treatment uh, and the right treatment. But it appears that that happens in so many few cases that that yeah. yeah it well, just gets... you mean the military play lip service to it. Everybody yeah. understand, and you mean knows about the army covenant and the army covenant's a bit of a joke. But what's wrote in the army covenant is that people who are amputees who should be getting the help and support and stuff. It's written in there that they get the pro- the best prosthetics and everything like that. And yes, they should, but what also should be written in there as well is people with mental health problems should be getting the best treatment and the best health care, but they're not. Because what happens is six months after you leave the military, you get no help, no support from the military wings when it comes to mental health at all. You're thrown on the same scrap heap that everybody else is thrown on to the NHS who can't cope. Or the bigger charities are signposting you to combat stress. And that's the only place people are saying to go. Because these other little charities who are doing really good work within mental health and PTSD don't get a look in because the bigger charities are signposting you to a certain thing. And that's a problem. Uh, this is. I, I, I hope it is. This, it's a huge yeah. problem, isn't it? Yeah. I hope this doesn't come across as because I, I hope you understand the reason I'm asking this because, you know, you meant you made a really great point when you said that you're en- you're ending up in in the same field as everybody else when you get back, because uh, I think 
when you when you when you're talking about this, it all I I feel and I I stuff I have bipolar disorder and and I and I've had I've been in psychiatric wards and various other things, and and I feel as as you're talking that you deserve you know I I, I don't really like this phrase but you if, if if anyone deserves special treatment it should be people who go to war you know because you're doing something incredibly te- you know terrifying but you're you know you're serving your country and all that kind of stuff and so I guess what I'm asking is in relation to how how horrible and, and you know difficult your job is do you feel that you you should get you know a certain like for example a hospital specifically for for discharged you know war heroes to come back or, or do you feel that it's just that the whole system needs to get better well you mean the whole system needs to get better if we can if we can do a hospital that's solely for people with physical injuries surely we can do a one that's solely for people with mental health issues and stuff like that you know what i mean yeah. a lot of my friends who are amputees tell us these great stories of when they were when they were down at headley court the cake woman used to come around and give them cake this person used to come along celebrities used to come along and see how good they were and different things I, me and my friends with mental health problems i haven't had any of that Mm-hmm. Or, or never will have any of that. So how is that supposed to make me feel? That makes me feel like a second-class citizen because I don't get that same sort of help and support. This is where things need to change. Do you think we, it's even worse for you with people with mental health. Yeah. yeah. You mean you still you start playing catch up? A lot of the mm-hmm. charities do the same. If you go to certain charities and stuff like that and have a look around their centres, there's loads of pictures of people with um, visible injuries mm-hmm. on there and stuff like that. And when you go in there, you feel as though that you're not worthy and you shouldn't be like that. And people turn around and say, "Well, it's not like that." It is. You need to speak to people with mental health problems and actually get it from their viewpoint, mm-hmm. not your own p- viewpoint of sitting on the fence and think that you know best. You don't. But I'm just saying, do you, uh, uh, I totally agree with all that you just said. I'm just saying, do you feel that you get pigeonholed because you're from the ar- like you're from the armed forces? Like, do you feel that you, you get mistreated even more than than say either any of us? Um, I don't know. You mean you mean um. You mean take this this for instance in America every, everything's a lot better in America when it comes to PTSD and mental health. But not only that, the way they treat their their injured servicemen. You yeah. mean we were aware on a golf trip and stuff like that. We're in this bar. We we were on the telly because we've been we've been filmed by the Golf Channel and stuff like that. And we were all clapping and pointing. A guy come over and they said, "Who's the boss?" I says, "Oh, the guy over there's the boss." He says, "Him and his friends would like to cover our bar tab all night because we're injured servicemen um, and stuff like that." Not once has this happened over in this country. So mm-hmm. things in the country need to change as well. I know everybody thinks that we go over there and we're hurting people and different things. I, I've got a job to do. I don't care what if it was to do with oil, if it was to do with religion or anything like that. I got paid to do my job to make sure that my my friends, my mates and the guys who served under me come home. I don't have a political view or anything like that. It's not about oil. It's not about that. It's to make sure that those are love oil. The other 11 guys that were under my under my charge came home safe to their families, and that was my sole job. And that's what made us in the British Army so good, because we just got on with our job, where the people were saying you had to work 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever it was, we did it. I, d- I don't care what the politicians say and different things like that, because I just had a job to do, and I had to get on with it. Whether it was about gold, money, oil, whatever it was, we were there to do a job, and that was it. That's why I think... I mean, I don't know what you guys think, Rick, uh, Ricky or Sharon, but I just think when when I hear when I hear Jason talk, it's just that I just I just think if anyone deserves any any 
you know, special treatment for what they have to go through. Yeah, it because be of what, what they go through. Because yeah. it's such a unique thing, you know. And Absolutely. and and the point, as you said, and I, you you, you spoke so eloquently when you said that, is just to say yeah. that you know he does something that I would never want to do. You know, I, think I, as well I, I can't do like I, it, it scares yeah. the living daylights out of me. I think as well that if you it doesn't matter what your politics are, surely returning soldiers, everyone should agree on that that they yeah. deserve. Whether you agree with they should have been out there or not, when they're on return, they deserve prior treatment. You well, we all should just care about human yeah, beings, yeah. yeah. Regardless of where they're from, yeah. we should care about what happens to people, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just think that was such a great way of phrasing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm very passionate. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Have any, you guys any I feel like I asked a lot of questions, but that was just on my mind. Do you got any questions at all? Or, um, I've you, just got one last one. Yeah, I, go just, for it. just, just to say to ask Jason, um, how do you feel that? Do, do you think the arts has something uh, to? Because when we watched, we were talking outside about war films. Do you feel that the films itself don't really show this side? You know, upon returning home, do they have a moral duty to show that? Because it's all very kind of victorious and quite patriotic, isn't it? The way it was sort of shown. Um, there is there is some there is some films out there that go into it. You know what I mean? Um, American Sniper goes into it. You know what I mean? Um, when Chris come back and stuff like that, yeah. the stuff he'd seen and different things like that. He was having problems with PTSD, and it was mm-hmm. talked about. And there's other films that that it's talked about on there, but it still gets glorified in. You know what I mean? That he was the guy who did the longest shot, or how many yeah. people he killed, and different things like that. So the focus wasn't about the mental health mm. and the problems and different things like that. You I mean the guy who actually killed him in the end? He was having PTSD and mental health problems as mm. well. But it, it didn't. It sort of detracted from from that. You know what I mean? So you mean it would be ideal if they could do a blockbuster movie? You know what I mean? I don't know. They could do one about the incidents I've been involved in, yeah. but not so much about the incident. Mm. Let's do a little bit about the incident, and then let's do a bit about how the PTS affects me, how it affects my wife, how yeah. it affects my son, how it affects my parents, and different things. You don't see that side mm. to it because you keep everything within your community, in your own community, and you don't yeah. want people to see when you're, when you're at your worst, when you're crying, when you're upset. Oh when you've had thoughts of taking your own life. Because mm-hmm. we've all been there and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, and, you know what I mean, I can only talk about it now is because I'm over it now. You know what I mean? I've got a wonderful family who, who care for me, and that's what keeps me going now. You know what I mean? If I didn't have that, I don't know what would sort of happen to me. So what would be your advice, just quickly, to, um, to people who are currently going through P- PTSD? Um, there's no need to suffer in silence. Um, there's people out there you can help you, who can help you, who you can talk to, and different things. I'd go and see your local GP, get signposted from there. You know what I mean? Like, there's no need to suffer in silence. There's plenty yeah. of people out there. You know what I mean? I, I just hope you mean one person who listens to this can take something from it and just think, well, you know what I mean? Jason's there talking about it. It helps me to talk about it, but mm-hmm. I just want other people to think, well, if he can talk about it and he's he's um, seeked help do exactly the same because that's the only way you can get help you know what I mean if you're an alcoholic and stuff until you admit you're an alcoholic you're not yeah. really going to get help mm. um, until you say look I've got PTSD or I think there's a problem and go and seek help you're probably not going to get help well I think I speak on behalf of everyone when I say that you know uh, I have a lot of lot of respect for you and that's mm. um, and um, I'm completely overwhelmed by yeah. the fact that you're willing to to talk about it because I can imagine it's not easy, uh, especially in your field. But um, that it's resonated with me a lot. So thank you for sharing mm-hmm. your story. And honestly, as someone you know, I, 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 it sort of puts my 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 life into perspective because I talk openly about you know I have a very volatile bipolar disorder and. Whenever I get any emails back saying that I've made a difference, it reminds me of why being open is incredibly important to share your story. So um, as I, I think I'm just really, really 
you know, pleased that you've got the attitude of that it's worth talking about. So yeah. thank you for having that attitude. Can I just say one yeah, final thing? It, yeah. um, you know what I mean? Um, I, I play cricket um, for one of the um, charities and stuff, and if anybody's interested, we've got a charity game um, up at Wickham Cricket Club um, near the nice. Glebe Sports Club in, in Newcastle um, on Sunday the 30th of August, um, and I'm the captain of the cricket team, and I'll be there. Um, playing and there's a lot of other a lot of the other people on the team who've got mental health problems. So if you want to come along to that game, it starts at one o'clock. Get yourself along and you can come and speak to the some of the heroes or legends, whatever Are people there like any to call it. Websites or social media we can take a look at. Yeah, if you go under um, under Wickham, um, you mean uh, Wickham CC on Twitter or uh, Jason Wilkes WWTW. That's my Twitter account. If anybody wants to look Brilliant. me up on there, it's Ooh, all on there. You may get a follow off me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, huge thank you for huge thank you for being so open and brilliant. And that I think uh, I, I think it's safe to say. It. I mean, I, I, I loved every other part of what's been on with this kind of technologically barren yeah. show, uh, show. But I think you know, I think you've. You've, uh, that, that was the best thing that we've done today so thanks, thank you thanks so much for being here I really appreciate much. it uh, but anyway cool so I'll say I'm playing my acoustic song of New Beginning now a uh, huge thank you to all the guests thank you if you're listening obviously on iTunes in particular or any other uh, podcast platform please do subscribe to us and let people know about it as I say we're award winning podcast we do, and uh, which is really cool and uh, you know we're part of a couple of charities that help run this so huge thank you to everyone that's listening and all the guests and obviously email us or tweet us at underscore mentally sound or mentally sound radio at gmail.com or obviously talk to me or ricky directly or, or steve if you want to uh, know more about it and be a guest and all that kind of thing please do uh, contact us and we'll try our best and thanks very much guys we'll speak to you soon bye cheers bye thank you
Whatever.